Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello! How you doing? Miss me? I know it's been a while, but I've been working on a book. I had to deliver half of the manuscript on the first of this month, and that kind of ate my life. But it's about Portland history, and today I wanted to share a little bit of what I'm working on with you. And today we're going to talk about Pacific Northwest history, but we're also going to talk about how we know things. We're going to talk about sources. We're going to talk about stories that are really good and compelling, but you really should try to substantiate them. And even though the examples I'm going to talk about come from the Pacific Northwest, these are lessons that are applicable to any field of history, at any time, and at any place. But I'm going to start in my hometown last month. Last month, Portland, Oregon was in the Toronto Sun. A writer for that fine Canadian newspaper wrote a light, fluffy travel piece about my hometown, headlined, Experience Portland Like a Local. This isn't unusual. Lightweight, fluffy travel pieces about Portland are a dime a dozen, and with good reason. Portland, Oregon is lovely. You should come here, spend money on bicycles and food carts and craft beer. And years ago, when I was first starting as a writer, I sold more than a few light, fluffy Portland, Oregon travel pieces. This one in the Toronto Sun, though, was different. The writer wrote about a tour with what they called a, quote, 30-something hipster guide, unquote. And according to that writer, the guide told them that Portland was a land of legal, year-round nudity, legal graffiti, which accounts for all the murals, restaurants and bars that are required by law to serve vegetarian options, and a land where nobody ever dresses up, people look at you weird if you wear a suit, or even worse, North Face. Also, according to this guide, Portland bans strip malls. None of these things are true. There is indeed an annual naked bike ride, but you will not find unclad hippies just wandering around town. Portland's kind of weird, but it's not that weird. Graffiti in Portland is not legal. The reason Portland has lots of murals is because murals are cool. People pay for them, both with public and private money. If anything, folks from other cities have remarked on how little graffiti there is in Portland. Unless you're in the bathroom of a dive bar or a punk club, then there's plenty of graffiti. That's where graffiti lives. It's supposed to be there. Restaurants don't need to serve vegetarian options. It's not like the vegan cops from Scott Pilgrim are going to show up at a restaurant, you know, if they're not serving non-animal product options. The reason you'll find lots of vegetarian options and vegan options in Portland is because restaurants want to serve a broad audience. There are vegetarians and vegans who live here. Restaurants want their business. They like money. Portland has plenty of people who wear suits. They also have plenty of people who wear North Face. You can walk around in a suit in Portland, Oregon. I've done it several times. And no one will think you're weird. Well, they might think you're a lawyer or work at a bank or something. But it's fine. Also, Portland has plenty of strip malls. 
and just like malls in other places, they are soul-crushing and terrible. It's not all bikes and craft beer here, unfortunately. So, one of our city's local alt-weeklies tracked down the tour guide quoted in the piece, and the guide this travel writer quoted attributed the misunderstanding to his dry and sarcastic sense of humor. The Toronto Sun, to their credit, took the piece down. Good for them. That is what a publication should do if they find something this unsubstantiated or this error-ridden. But this is not the first time that an out-of-town media outlet has mischaracterized the Pacific Northwest. A very similar thing happened way back in the 1990s. On November 15, 1992, the New York Times ran a piece in their style section called Grunge, a success story, outlining the then-new subculture of, well, grunge. You probably know what grunge is. Like the Toronto Sun's piece on Portland, the Times' article was lightweight, breezy, and poorly sourced. At the end of it, the writer wrote, quote, All subcultures speak in code. Grunge is no exception. Megan Jasper, a 25-year-old sales representative at Caroline Records in Seattle, provided this lexicon of grunge speak, coming soon to a high school or mall near you. What follows is a grunge lexicon printed in the New York Times. Wax slacks, old ripped jeans, fuzz, heavy wool sweaters, plaits, platform shoes, kickers, heavy boots, swinging on to flippity-flop, hanging out, bound and hagged, staying home on Friday or Saturday night, score, great, harsh realm, bummer, cobnobbler, loser, dish, desirable guy. Bloated, big bag of bloatation, drunk, lame stain, uncool person, tom-tom club, uncool outsiders, rock on, happy goodbye, unquote. Now, a lot of you listening were maybe around in 1992, maybe some of you were in Seattle or surrounding environs, and took part in the Pacific Northwest grunge scene. You might be rolling your eyes because you never actually called anyone a lame stain or a cobnobbler. Or you might be laughing with recognition because you've heard this list before and you know where this is going. That slang? That's all fake. Megan Jaspers, the sales rep at a record company that the New York Times talked to, she made it up. Apparently, people in the know thought the fake slang was hilarious. A few folks in Seattle started printing it on t-shirts, and Mudhoney, a pretty good Seattle grunge band, deliberately used the fake slang in an interview with British magazine Melody Maker. The New York Times ended up getting called out on its fake slang by the publication The Baffler, who took a great amount of joy in bringing down America's most prominent publication. The Baffler wrote, quote, when the newspaper of record goes on searching for the next big thing, and the next big thing piddles on its leg, we think that's funny, unquote. But I told you I wanted to give you an insight to what I have been working on, what I have been writing about. Well, the book I'm writing is all about Portland history, and it's focused on bad things. Okay, not actually bad things. It's not about, say, 
the 1990s heroin epidemic or gang problem or Japanese internment or, you know, systemic racism or anything like that. Though I would love to write that book. If a publisher wants to pay me to write about Portland's history of any of those things, I am so there. No, rather it's about, you know, gambling, saloons, bordellos, and all of that. And there is a prominent story about a certain bordello in Portland that supposedly operated in the 1880s on the Willamette River. The bordello was owned, supposedly, by a madam named Nancy Boggs. And this floating brothel was opulently painted with red and green. You could see it on the river, beckoning you, and it was two stories. The first story, supposedly, was dedicated to Bacchus, and the second story to Venus. The thing is, though, every so often the Portland police would come to raid Nancy Boggs's floating palace of sin, but when they did, she would simply float over to the other side of the Willamette River. You see, at the time in the 1880s, that was a different city. That was East Portland, and a different police department had jurisdiction. Whenever the East Portland police would come to raid Nancy Boggs's floating palace of sin, variously dedicated to Bacchus and Venus, she would do the exact same thing and float back to the west side, back to Portland. The story goes that eventually the two police departments were sick of this madam basically playing this game with them, floating back and forth between them, and they decided to do a joint raid, each coming at her from their respective cities. Nancy Boggs saw that the cops were coming in boats for her, and while she was floating on the Willamette River, she attached a hose to the hot water heater in her houseboat bordello. She positioned herself on the water with the hose, and, as the police were arriving, mowed them down with hot, steaming water. She was victorious for a moment, but the Portland and East Portland Police Departments, they were not done with her. In reprisal for this attack, they cut the anchor on her scow and sent it adrift up to Willamette, which back then wasn't dammed or dredged or at all controlled. Back in the 1880s, it was a much larger and wilder piece of water. Nancy and her girls were in danger of being swept out to the Columbia or maybe even to the Pacific Ocean itself. What could they do? Well, fortunately, they got lucky. They found themselves washed ashore on a sandbar. They had a soft landing, and they were no longer going to get swept out into the larger river or into the ocean. However, it was night and they were stranded. Nancy, though, was as resourceful as ever. She contacted a tugboat captain, whose acquaintance she had, and convinced him somehow, to help her and her girls. He did so and tugged them back into their place on the Willamette. She was in business the next day, and neither the Portland nor East Portland police bothered her ever again. That little anecdote has been repeated time and time again. It is one of the most colorful bits of history of Portland, Oregon, and isn't it great? Isn't it fun? Don't you kind of wish that you could go and hang out at Nancy Boggs's floating palace of sin? Don't you kind of admire her as a wily trickster figure? Isn't it dramatic the way that her fortunes turn? One minute she's tricking the police, 
The next minute, she's getting attacked. One minute, she's fighting back. The next minute, she's adrift. One minute, she is safely on a bar, but then she's stranded in the night. But fortunately, she's back again, a triumphant trickster. Tour guides and retrospectives of Pacific Northwest history love that story. And it is very often passed off as true. But you can probably see where this is going. We've already talked about two poorly sourced things so far. That Toronto Sun article and the harsh realm of fake grunge slang. Like both of those things, this comes from just one source. A Portland, Oregon writer named Stuart Holbrook, who had a column in the Portland, Oregonian, our daily newspaper. He also wrote for the American Mercury and the New Yorker. And Stuart Holbrook is a truly wonderful writer. But that story about Nancy Boggs, her floating bordello, and her naval battle with the cops? Well, it comes from, it looks like, 1957 in an Oregonian column by Holbrook. Prior to that, the Portland Oregonian uh, doesn't really mention Nancy Boggs except a few times in passing. At one point, it does mention Nancy Boggs owning what they call a low house, that is, a brothel, on Pine Street, but there's no mention of her naval battle with the Portland police or the East Portland police. And Holbrook, in his writing, gives us precise years for this. In his 1957 Oregonian column, he lists the incident as happening in 1880. However, in a collection of his writing, assembled after his death, that gives the date of the incident as 1883. So it's pretty easy to go back and look at old publications and check for this in either of those years. But nothing. Yeah, it's not there. There's a passing reference to a madam named Nancy Boggs, sure, but the dramatic story just doesn't happen. So here's what I think happened. I think that this guy, Stuart Holbrook, never actually wanted to be taken seriously. If you read him, you can tell that he's kind of full of it. He was not a news writer for the Portland Oregonian. He wrote these folksy columns about the old days. And I don't mean history. I mean people's ideas of the old days. He would go around to saloons, talk to old guys who kind of remembered the 1800s, keep buying him drinks, and ask them for anecdotes. Later on, he would massage them into good narratives for his newspaper columns for the Oregonian, the American Mercury, and sometimes the New Yorker. And he was good at it. And I really do think that he never intended to be taken seriously. Or at least, that's what I want to think. Because he's a good writer. And he's really good at spinning old folksy tall tales. But I don't think that we should mistake them for history. But I think we should see them for what they are. Fun. Pranks. Sarcasm. Knowing winking anecdotes. A game. A way to entertain yourself with something that you know isn't true. Something that you know, if you checked it, wouldn't check out. But a lot of people don't approach sources quote-unquote sources, like Holbrook, or like or like Megan Jaspers, the source of grunge slang, or like the dry, sarcastic tour guide to Toronto Sun quoted, like that. They just take them at face value and assume, yep, that is the truth. Today I'm here to tell you you shouldn't do that. 
Here's what we can learn about these three kind of related bits of Pacific Northwest pseudo-history. I have four bits of advice. One, we should always think about the quality of our sources. Who are they? Why are they relating this to us? Remember that sources always have a motivation. That motivation could be to report the news, record data, or further a narrative or ideology. It could also be to simply tell a good story. When you are looking at something, think, why is this person or publication or whatever telling me this? What are they trying to do? Two, try to corroborate. If you find something from one source, try to find another different source that also points to it. So if somebody tells you that a big dramatic event happened in 1883 or 1880, check the news in 1883 or 1880. Likewise, if you hear somebody describe grunge slang, don't simply take their word. Call somebody else and ask them, without mentioning specific words you're looking to get confirmed or disconfirmed, about grunge slang. Or, if there are certain words that you want to confirm the existence of, look at interviews. It's not like in 1992, Nirvana and Alice in Chains and other bands weren't talking to publications. Crack open a music magazine. See if any of the slang described to you pops up there. If it doesn't, well, then you might have a problem. And this doesn't just mean check the written records. Historians can also work with other disciplines. For instance, historians can work with archaeologists to find elements of the physical world that reinforce written sources, or possibly complicate written sources. There are lots of different ways that you can find more information pointing to or pointing away or not pointing at at all one source that you have. Three, there is a tension between narrative and accuracy. I deal with this tension all the time. Now, I am a pop history communicator. It is my job to read a bunch of stuff and occasionally talk to academics and go through a whole bunch of like various sources and turn it into a podcast or sometimes an alt-weekly feature that somebody can listen to or read in 10 or 20 minutes. And I really like that job. But there is always this urge for me to make it really narratively satisfying. Like, here's one way that you make something narratively satisfying. You put lots of reversals in it. That Nancy Boggs story, she's up, she's down, she's up, she's down, she's up again at the end. That constant reversal of fortune works very well if you're telling a story or making a movie or a TV show or whatever. However, real history doesn't always play out so neatly. And if you're somebody in my position, you want things to be compelling, but you don't want to BS your audience. You have to find a way to tell the real story without giving into your impulses to, you know, turn it into a movie. And that is difficult. Think about that when some pop history communicator like me is talking to you. Think about how they have to contend with narrative versus accuracy. And number four, my last little piece of advice, be comfortable with uncertainty. There are plenty of things out there that we have only one source on, that we can't confirm, that we don't have good details of. Now, if we only have one source on something, that 
doesn't mean that it didn't happen. That doesn't mean that that one source necessarily is false or unreliable or bunk. It just means that we have one source on it. And that means that we should be comfortable with kind of not knowing or only kind of knowing something. We can't say for sure whether or not a thing happened or didn't happen. We can only say for sure what the source tells us. And that's a tricky balancing act. We want to be sure, but more often than not, we have to say we just don't know. That is a humbling process, but if you're going to think about history, or really anything, it's a necessary one. Thank you all for listening. As always, this is a listener-supported podcast. I couldn't make this podcast without you who choose to support it every single month. Thank you all for swinging on the flippity-flop with the Weird History Podcast. None of you are cobnobblers. You are all dishes. You are all score. We are on social media. Go to Twitter. I am at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. And even though Facebook is kind of like the TomTom Club, we're on Facebook too. Facebook.com slash Weird History Podcast. Go on Apple Podcast. Give us stars and reviews. And even if you're there to say that we're a lame stain, those reviews and those ratings help other people discover the show. So that's always appreciated. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Rock on.